What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people and my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again. I appreciate you asking me back. So you said you were going to pinch yourself. I didn't know it was that kind of show now. I mean, if you guys are in the privacy of your own home, if you want to do these things. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Hey, man. What's up, guys? This is Homicide. Oh, that's my homie. Homicide with a big homie club. Yeah, that would be it. Hey, this is David Penzer, and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling. Well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Wrestling, and you were listening to episode number 310 of the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling podcast, brought to you today and powered by our appearance at Legends of the Ring. Next Saturday, the 21st of October, Legends of the Ring takes place once again in Monroe, New Jersey, this time headed up by a two man power trip lineup filled with ECW champions, including the franchise Shane Douglas the Sandman, Jerry Lynn, and now just incredible, in addition to the devil himself, Kevin Sullivan, all appearing with us at Legends of the Ring. All the information is on our Facebook page right now. 
And you can head over there and find out what times everybody's going to be appearing and some of the cool packages that you can get to be a part of an extreme day with the two-man power trip. But if you didn't know this by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined here on the two-man power trip by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, today on the show, we are talking Legends of the Ring. We're talking the guests that will be a part of the Captain's Corners booth at Legends of the Ring. We've already interviewed Dr. Tom Pritchard. We've already interviewed the dirty white boy, Tony Anthony. And today we dip back into the rare interview mode with Two Man Power Trip in bringing forward the guest of Captain's Corner that day. Another one in the flamboyant Eric Embry joining today's program. And folks, sit back and relax because you are in for an epic to say the least, as John and Eric Embry cover Embry's entire career from top to bottom. And when we talked about it in the past, when it has these long-form interviews, you get so much detail out of them. You get so many different aspects of a career. But Eric Embry is the perfect, the absolute perfect guest to go into detail with because not only was he a top star in the promotions that he wrestled in, but he was also a booker. So he was the man behind the pen, and he was the one who was making a lot of the decisions that impacted professional wrestling during a given time in a given territory. So since it's an epic, and since this does take a lot of time and you're in for a pretty lengthy chat, I'm going to hand it over to John here. So tell us a little bit more of the highlights that we have to look forward to as well as some more details about Eric Embry's appearance with the Captain's Corner at the upcoming Legends of the Ring convention in Monroe on October 21st. Yes, Chad, back at it again at the two-man power trip, and this time a very, very rare interview with the legendary Eric Embry. And this was quite a fun ride, quite a great retrospective into a legendary career of a very rare and underrated guy. He has only been on one other podcast. He's only other done one ever interview, and that was for a Stone Cold Steve Austin. So we are absolutely honored and thrilled and just ecstatic that we had on his basically his second ever podcast interview. And the only other one being Stone Cold Steve Austin is another huge honor to throw in there. And any time that we can be mentioned in the same breath or the same sentence as Stone Cold Steve Austin, let alone be in the same vein as him as far as the only guys to interview Eric Embry it's just an unbelievable um, you know unbelievable respect and unbelievable honor for us to be able to be in that category so thank you to Eric I mean that's really 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 cool and he even says in the interview really puts us over saying that he saw our list of guests he saw our show he's heard of the show he's just you know was was happy to come on so that kind of uh, was was a thrill right off the bat and got me super excited and you should be super excited to head out to Legends of the Ring on October 21st with good old Captain's Corner Nick over there. We'll be bringing in Eric Embry and a host of other special and rare guests like Dr. Tom Pritchard, Eric Watts, the Young Stallions, and the, and the dirty white boy himself, Tony Anthony. So please go to Captain's Corner's facebook page and go to his free web store and please head out to legends of the ring on october 21st and hey you're going to see us there with the legends of extreme we're going to have an extreme photo 
opportunity and we're going to be there with a lot of ECW legends like Sandman, Jerry Lynn, Justin Credible, Kevin Sullivan, and of course our guy Shane Douglas. But I digress. I just want to talk a little bit about Eric Embry in this interview before I head it back over to Chatty Boy. Now, this interview was a great retrospective. We cover a lot of ground, cover you know his whole entire run, his whole career from beginning to his sad retirement, and we talk about everything that has to do with the car accident and thereafter, and him basically having nothing to do with the wrestling business for over seven years. So that is some really detailed stuff and some really you know, real emotional stuff kind of that we delved into right off the bat. So that was some good stuff there. We also, of course, talk about his booking days for World Class and USWA. And we also talk about his kind of taking over for the Von Erichs down there and becoming the face of World Class and really getting over with that Dallas crowd and that Sportatorium crowd and all the guys down there. And, of course, we do talk about Snuggle Steve Austin. We do talk about Cactus Jack. do talk about Percy Pringle. We get some great stuff on not only Jerry Jarrett, but Jeff Jarrett as well. And we talk about his long and storied history with Jerry Lawler. Good in front of the camera, not so good behind the camera. So that is some really interesting stuff. You'll get an awesome Vern Gagne story about Super Clash. You'll get an awesome Mike Graham story about his days in Florida. You'll also hear about Japan, Canada, Puerto Rico, and everywhere in between, especially focusing in on world-class USWA and his days as a booker, and what a thankless job that is. So I don't want to talk too much more, because this is an epic, which is one of our longer episodes. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a little bit of the flamboyant one, the legendary Eric Embry. Absolutely. And again, we want to thank Eric Embry for taking this time to go down memory lane with his career. It's an absolute honor to be in a discussion with Steve Austin And when you haven't done a lot of interviews and you are somebody who's put in the career of an Eric Embry, we obviously are more than obliging giving him the airwaves. So thank you so much, Eric. Thank you to Nick at Captain's Corner and get all the information at Captain's Corner free web store at freewebstore.org slash captains dash corner for ticket information, signing times and all of the amazing packages that Captain's Corner puts together for these weekends with the conventions. I got to say, out of all the people that we do deal with, Nick might be the most organized. He might be the most impressive because he's got everything set. And when you get in front of him, he could possibly be the nicest person in the wrestling business. And that is saying something because he goes above and beyond to uh, make his guests feel comfortable And he is a customer service numero uno. He is fans first. And that is really cool to see. So we can't wait to see Nick on Saturday, October 21st at Legends of the Ring. And we cannot wait to see all the guests. One that we've interviewed and two that we're just looking forward to seeing. I mean, to see the young stallions, to see Dr. Tom and the Dirty White Boy together. And also throw Eric Embry and Eric Watts into the discussion. I mean, this is an amazing group. And after you're done meeting all them, you can head over to our booth where you can see all the extreme world champions, including Shane Douglas, the Sandman, Jerry Lynn, and Justin Credible. And that is going to be one hell of an afternoon. Oh, and don't forget the devil himself, Kevin Sullivan, because if you do forget him, I'm sure you'll have some kind of voodoo curse put on you. So don't forget to get to Legends of the Ring 
in Monroe, New Jersey on the 21st here of October. It's going to be an amazing day. So, John, why don't you take us through the rest of the way, get us over to Eric Embry, and let's get this epic on the road. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Rasslin Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, tmptofwrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. Follow along with a two-man power trip in 2017 as we come to a town near you. TMPT hits the road. October 21st, we hit the Legends of the Ring in New Jersey. November 4th, we hit the big event in New York City. And the big one, the granddaddy of them all, the big guy, Wrestlecade in North Carolina on 11:25 with Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard. There will be a Four Horsemen reunion for sure. So follow along with the two-man power trip as you never know where we may land. And now, without any further ado, the flamboyant one. You may know him as a Nitro or a four-time USWA Southern Heavyweight Champion, a former WCCW Tag Team Champion. He was a booker for World Class, a booker for USWA down in Memphis. He is Eric Embry. Please enjoy.
a wrestling legend. You may know him as the flamboyant one or Nitro. He is a former WCCW tag team champion, a former four-time USWA Southern Heavyweight Champion. He is the one and only Eric Embry. Eric, welcome to the two-man power trip. Hey, Hey, thanks, buddy. A privilege to be here. Uh, I was looking at your all site a while ago online, and, man, you have had legend after legend on your podcast, so it's a privilege to be invited to be on here. Hey, no problem, and thank you for saying that. We we definitely accumulated some legends, but now we finally get a uh, Texas legend, a USWA legend on the show, and yourself, and of course, you will be at Legends of the Ring in Monroe, New Jersey, on October the 21st with Captain's Corner. Nick, our buddy over there at Captain's Corner, what do you think about kind of getting out there and doing the whole convention thing and doing some autograph signings? Well, you know, it. it uh, I retired, this tells how old I am, in October of 1992. And it blows my mind that people still want to tell me hello. And I am so excited about going to be there. Uh, I did one convention for them a few years ago and had a blast. So I am just super excited about coming to this one and can't wait to get there. I wish it was tomorrow. That is awesome, and I love the excitement because not very often are you in the Northeast, and obviously New Jersey in general. What do you think about the Northeastern part of the wrestling community and the Northeastern fans? Well, they're they're very, very dedicated. Uh, What what I can recall off the top of my head is uh, the Sabolis, Mario Saboli, I think. There's two or three of them. Uh, was running some shows up there, and I was uh, working in Puerto Rico, and they partnered up with Puerto Rico. And I don't know if anybody would ever remember, but we uh, had a battle royal up there, and I think I am the only person in the history of professional wrestling to eliminate both Samoans, Afa and Sika, at the same time in a battle royal. <laughs> but they called it... I did it because I was afraid they'd whoop me if I didn't do it and dumped them both over the top rope at the same time like Superman. So I, I remember that area. The crowd went nuts. <laughs> that is awesome. and That's quite a uh, distinction to be able to be the only person to ever eliminate those two monsters, those two behemoths <laughs> uh, known as uh, the, the Wild Samoans. That's pretty cool. Uh, oh, I guess you have yeah, fond memories. You're not lying. They had, they had to be 400 pounds apiece and uh, one on one on their each arm, boom, over the top rope. They called it. I said, you're crazy. They said, do it, brother, do it. And brother did it because I was afraid not to. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was <laughs> awesome. But the, the fans up there, you know, I made it. Uh, uh, one, I did two conventions over the years. One of them was up there. And it just it blew my mind to the uh, the people that knew me, remembered me, come out to see me. I, I had a blast, and like I say, I am so excited. I just I can't wait to do it again. And what's really cool about Legends of the Ring, and obviously Nick bringing you in, it's really very cool that you basically are such a rare guest and such a rare autograph that not only are you rare, but also the Dirty White Boy, who you'll be with, is rare. Eric Watts is rare. It's rare to get the Young Stallions together and Dr. Tom. 
So are you looking forward to seeing those guys? Brother, I have not seen Dr. Tom or Dirty White Boy Tony in probably 25 years. I've talked to him on the phone a little bit, not much over the time. But uh, uh, those guys, you can count your friends in professional wrestling on one hand. It was a very cutthroat business back in the day. And Tony and Tom are definitely, I can count them on that one hand. They were friends, and I am so excited to be able to see them this coming. It's just, it's unreal. I mean, I won't even be able to sleep tonight from talking about it. That is great to kind of join your old, uh, your old Memphis buddies, if you will, you know, your old, um, your old buddies, your old old partners in crime. It's kind of cool. And like you said, there's not many guys you can count on your hand and say is a true friend. What about those guys really stuck out and made you, you know, kind of gel with them so well and have good chemistry? They, they, they were just, they were friends. They had my back. I had their back. You know, a, a booker in professional wrestling is not a very popular person. Uh, you know, you, you make the decisions on who's winning or losing for whatever reason and to go along with your program. And, uh, you know, everybody thinks they're the best and needs to win every night and uh, so forth. And uh, you have to let people go like, you know, any company does, AT&T, anybody, you know. And, and a booker... Uh, makes all these decisions, so a booker is not very popular. But uh, it never interfered with the friendship from Tony or Tom ever. It, it uh, we we just we clicked. Now, obviously, you booked uh, world class, but I think you also helped book uh, USWA a bit with uh, Jerry Lawler. How'd you kind of become a booker? How did you get into that role? Well, it, uh, I think it all started with Joe Blanchard in Southwest Championship Wrestling out of San Antonio many years ago. And uh, Luke Williams, the sheep herders, were there. And uh, Luke was booking, and uh, I was just, you know, very observant uh, in the business. Uh, Luke uh, left to go to Puerto Rico to take the book there, and uh, Joe gave me the book in San Antonio, and uh that started it, and uh, I, from San Antonio, I went to Puerto Rico and booked there probably three, maybe four different times. Then uh, Jerry Jarrett, when he bought the Von Erichs out in Dallas, uh, offered me the book there. That's how all that got started, and uh, then from uh, Dallas, I had, uh, uh, I don't know, not retired, but took a leave of absence and went home to Florida for a while, and uh, Jerry Jarrett called and offered me the book in Memphis uh, to come back into the business. And then I went to uh, book Memphis for a little while, which uh, might might have been a mistake because uh, Memphis had its uh, set people and uh, was, uh, I don't, I, I told Tommy Gilbert one time at a uh, little reunion that the Pope could not book Memphis because of all the politics and uh yeah, that that was uh, the hardest challenge I think I ever had was booking Memphis because everybody was headstrong Lawler wanted to do what he wanted to do and this one wanted to do and uh this and that but uh you know uh 
it was what it was. I had a heck of a ride. I loved the business. Uh, my life was dedicated to the wrestling business and the fans because I understand I would not have uh, did anything I did, not made it near as big as I made it without the people. You know, God bless the people that supported the professional wrestling back in the day. As far as becoming a booker and doing things like that, when you do become the booker, is it something you're booking out like a year in advance or a couple weeks in advance? How does that actually work? Well, I, I guess every booker would be different. Uh, you know, I'm sure uh, Vince stays months ahead of himself now with the WWE and so forth. But uh, I tried to stay two or three weeks. I had the big picture that I was – uh, trying to accomplish, and uh, it's kind of like writing a book or a soap opera. You write the last chapter first, and then all the, the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chapter falls in place as you're building to the big finale, the big shamas, the big final cage match or whatever. And uh, I did all my angles that way, and uh, that worked very well for me. Uh, you would have to adjust as you went because, you know, sometimes uh, wrestlers would get a better deal, a uh, better offer to go to another territory. And, you know, back in the day, there was 20-plus territories in the United States. And you would have to adjust your storylines accordingly. But uh, I, I always knew where I was going next week and the next week with the big picture six, eight weeks down the road. A year? No way. Didn't have a clue if I would even be there in a year. Hmm. it's always fascinating with you know bookers and they get credit for this and sometimes they don't get credit for things and did you find it it's a tough job being the booker because sometimes it really is a no-win situation sure sure it's not the toughest thing i've ever, ever did in my whole life uh was being a booker because you, you know like it's not a popular position you know it's like a foreman at the factory and uh uh, the promoter usually gets the credit for that sellout. But if you don't have butts in those seats, you can bet it's the booker's fault for the people not buying that ticket. Definitely. The promoter gets kind of all the glory, and the booker is kind of just in the background. <laughs> now, as far, as far as, you know, uh, booking and getting credit – is there anything that you, you know, when you were booking, you almost said, like, you should have gotten more credit for it and maybe the, the promoter got all the credit? Well, I, just in, in general, uh, no, there wouldn't be a, or a specific example that I could give you 25 years later. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the promoters, uh, you know, they own the territory. That's, that's who I worked. I worked for Carlos Colon in Puerto Rico. I worked for Jerry Jarrett in Memphis and Dallas and Joe Blanchard. Uh, Joe, uh, for the record, was one of the fairest, uh, honest, most honest, down-to-earth people I had met in in the professional wrestling business. Uh, He didn't, uh, he went out of business. He sold out uh, back then, uh, was kind of forced to. Uh, one story that uh, could be interesting to you, maybe, uh, this was, uh, you know, we had uh, back in Southwest with Joe, we had USA uh, Network 
Joe was the first promotion to go nationwide on the cable. And uh, Pat Patterson called. Vince was wanting to purchase that time from us. And uh, Luke Williams didn't want to. Joe wanted to sell it to him. And Joe put that decision on my shoulders. I was the one that called Pat Patterson and told him, no, we we won't sell it. And uh, probably three months or, I don't know, three months, I guessing, four months later, uh, we could no longer pay the heavy fee that USA was charging us each week to air the program. And Vince uh, paid off the, uh, that we were in debt to USA and got the time slot. That's how Vince McMahon got on USA Network at the beginning. Did you ever regret kind of not doing the deal, or did you ever feel any regret about it at all? Yes, it kept me from uh, uh, making big bucks working in uh, New York by making that decision. Uh, I didn't, you know, at the time, I was like a lot of the old-timers. I thought it was impossible, Vince's vision, to take over the world. But as we all know now, it was not impossible. He pulled it off. He did it. He shut everybody down. Was the WWE always someplace, or excuse me, the WWF at that point, was that always someplace yeah. that was on your radar that you wanted to work? Not not necessarily, no. Uh, it, it later, uh, later in my career, as offices were closing and there was not very many places left to make a living, came on my radar. Uh, But after talking with uh, Pat up there, it was obvious that uh, it it would never happen. Uh, You know, I didn't uh, slow, I I, I prolonged their process or their big takeoff maybe by not doing the deal or uh, with Blanchard going with them. But uh, I just... uh, I was a rock in the road because uh, Vince pulled it off. He did it. And obviously, you know, we we see where where they are now. But back when you're kind of coming up with Joe Blanchard and, you know, that was kind of your first experience as far as being a booker, what like mm-hmm. what kind of prerequisites or whatever, you know, did you have to do anything beforehand or did you, did you just have to basically just, you know, you're you're one of the boys – did you have to like give any storyboards or anything, or, or did they kind of just trust your wrestling knowledge? Well, they kind of they kind of trust you. I mean, you know, you can uh, talk with someone, be around someone, and uh, know their business mind for the business. Uh, you know, the it factor, the big so-called it factor, and so forth. And uh, they just, you know, the promoter has to put his confidence in you. And uh, Joe did, and gave me that break. And uh, it kind of snowballed for me from there uh, until the end, until the semi ran over me and uh, kind of ended everything in 92. Now, that, that semi and that car accident, which, you know, for people that, that don't know, like you said, it basically ended your career. And it's obviously a very, very scary thing. You're almost lucky to be alive, right? I mean, it, it could have been much worse. Yes, yes. Could could have been very easily uh, a semi come around. Well, I was going up a hill and actually really close to my mother's house in Kentucky where I'd come to visit. 
and uh, I was going up the hill, and the semi came around the curb at the top of the hill, jackknife, and there was a guardrail to my right. Long story short, I pulled over and stopped up next to the guardrail, braced and said, please, God, don't let it be too bad. And, brother, I ain't never been hit so hard in my life. What a potato that was. <laughs> it, it got me. Hmm. But I, I could have come back uh, probably in a year, year and a half, year and a half. I could have come back to the business, but uh, the business had changed so much uh, with uh, Vince taking over and offices closing. Uh, it was right in that time period. And uh, I'd always promised myself that I would not uh, work when I could no longer perform like I thought I should be able to perform and embarrass myself like so many of the old-timers had to do financially. They had to keep working. And it, it was just a good time to stay gone. So I stayed gone. At that point, were you missing the business at all? Was it an aspiration to kind of somehow get back in and, and whether it be, well, obviously not really a wrestling role, but, you know, maybe some behind-the-scenes producer agent role. Was, was that ever kind of uh, in your mind sure. that you were missing yes. the business a lot? <laughs> yes, sir, brother. It, it, it was hard. Uh, I actually went almost seven years, seven years, without talking to anyone in the wrestling business, no matter how close a friend they were. And I did that because I knew if I talked to one person, I would be back in it and embarrassing myself because I couldn't perform like I used to. And at the, at the almost that seven-year mark, I knew I had it whooped. I could stay away. And I called Percy Pringle. And uh, we started reminiscing, and I called Jeff Jarrett, and I, I just burned the phone up that night calling people. And But uh, I'd been gone long enough to stay away then. Some great names, Jeff Jarrett and, and Percy Pringle, to be getting that call. Obviously, uh, you, you were Percy, pretty close Percy with was a friend. Guys. Yes, yes, yes. Percy, you know, that goes to that counting them on one hand. And, uh, you know, Percy played a, a very instrumental part uh, in my mind of getting me over in Dallas, along with Cactus Jack McFoley, uh, Gary Young, Iceman Parsons. Uh, you know, what, what talent I had to work with in Dallas. Uh, you know, the people were... Uh, I don't know what the word would be. They wasn't tired of the Von Erics because, my gosh, the Von Erics were like gods in Dallas. But no one, no wrestling fan had ever seen anyone surpass the Von Eric, pushed to the top, past the Von Eric. And I was the first, and it, it just clicked, clicked, clicked. And, uh, you know, Percy, uh, babyface manager, and... Uh, uh, played played a big part, as all those guys did. I, I couldn't have did it uh, with my talent. I, I did it with their talent and uh, just got over like a big dog there. And uh, so still to this day, so thankful for the, uh, the fans of world class and, uh, you know, everywhere. But uh, they, were, they were just so responsive, so loving, and just had, what a ride, man. I had a ride. 
And it's crazy to think anybody was as over or even more over than the Von Erichs in the world-class Dallas area. I mean, that area was such a hotbed, obviously, with uh, Fritz leading the crew for a long time, and obviously uh, Carrie and Kevin really, you know, carrying the flag for the Von Erichs for a while. But how was, you know, that crowd reaction to you? Because that must have been so special to be that over in that, you know, hotbed of wrestling. Yes, yes, it, it, it was unreal. You know, as I look back on it, I still don't, I'm not 100% sure how we pulled it off like we did, but, uh, <clears throat> oh, my gosh, it, it was uh, it was unreal. But, you know, the Von Erichs, uh back in the day, they'd had a lot of bad publicity, a lot of things happen, and uh, the, the wrestling fans were just ready for a change, and... Uh, Eric Embry fell into that time slot, and uh, it just it took off, and uh, there was just no looking back. I mean, it, it it took off, and you know, Fritz von Eric gets a lot of heat from a lot of guys, but man, I got along so well with Fritz. Uh, just you know, nothing but respect for the guy, and uh, you know, he built a territory. Uh, gosh, bigger than anybody really imagined. Mike Michael Hayes had a had a thing with it back then. He was trying to get Fritz, Fritz to go nationwide, worldwide with the promotion, and Fritz wouldn't do it because, you know, all the, re- the promoters had that uh, uh, un- unwritten understanding. You stayed in your own areas, and, uh, you know, they all did that until Vince uh, did his thing. But uh, got along great with Fritz. And Kerry, oh, my gosh, Kerry was just uh, give you the shirt off his back. Kevin and I never saw eye to eye on anything. And uh, Mike, I didn't really know a whole lot. Uh, he passed away and I, uh, when I hadn't been there very long, when I first come there. And uh, Bruiser Brody and Buck Robley were booking. Bruiser was the booker. Uh, and I'd made a shot in Puerto Rico. Uh, flew in for the weekend, as I would do periodically on big shows. And uh, Bruiser, I remember he... Uh, come in the dressing room with me and Abdullah Butcher and Bruiser shut the door and I looking like, uh-oh, what have I done? <laughs> and got down on his knees and said, Eric, I'm booking Dallas. I need you. I need you. I said, Bruiser, man, I've got restaurants in Florida. I have, I'm just doing Carlos a favor coming in this weekend, blah, blah, blah. And anyway, Bruiser and Abdullah talked me into going to Dallas. And that's, that's how the whole Dallas thing started. And those are two guys, to correct me if I'm wrong here, but those are two guys I wouldn't want to say no to. <laughs> Brother, that's what I was thinking when Bruiser shut that dressing room door with just me, him, and Abdullah in there. I thought, oh, my gosh, I have screwed up now. <laughs> but Brody and me got along great. I mean, you know, Bruiser, when I booked Puerto Rico, he would come in for me and do big shows and uh, very unfortunate to what happened there. I've talked about it before. Don't really want to get into it uh, again. People have done heard heard my version of uh, Gonzalez and Bader and Brody, and uh, you know there was just 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 a sad thing, bad thing that happened. But you know, God bless Puerto Rico right now. Uh, I was watching on the news the other day, and uh, I was watching a feed coming from. Uh, 
San Juan, and I actually saw the Walgreens drugstore where I had a condo right down the street from, and that brought back a lot of memories when, you know, seeing the, the place just all devastated. So uh, sad and crazy what, you know, what those storms did down in Puerto Rico really devastated it. And then, obviously, you know, you, you quickly mentioned the, the Bruiser Brody murder. Obviously, we won't get into it. And, uh, you know, we won't get into it. And you, you've said the story before, but it is crazy that that happened. And it's pretty shocking yes. that somebody can get away with uh, with that as well. Well, if you knew him and knew the situation in Puerto Rico, it wouldn't be shocking uh, that he got away with it. Uh, man, those guys, and, but I don't want to get into all that, but they controlled that island. They controlled it, everything. But anyway, moving right along, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, as far as Dallas, I wanted to ask you about the Sportatorium and the magic that was the Sportatorium and the fans. What was it about that building? It seems like one of those legendary, iconic wrestling buildings. Oh, yes. It uh, it was the stinkingest, hottest place in the summer, the coldest place in the winter, no heat, no air conditioning. Uh, the air conditioning in the winter was they opened the vents at the top of the building around the sides. Uh I think the magic uh, had a lot to do with this, the seating arrangement. Everyone was real close. The seating, the seats were really elevated as they went up. And if you were in the top bleacher of the building, you had a great uh, view of the ring, almost like as if, as if you were in the front row. Uh, the fans were just all unreal. Uh, uh, they got behind the baby faces that they got behind. They were behind. It was almost like a family thing. And that probably goes back to the Von Erics being over the, uh, as strong as they were over, uh, setting that tone uh, for the next guy, I guess uh, would be how to explain it. Uh, the bond with the fans there was like no other bond I had seen in any other arena anywhere such a cool venue and it is funny that you, that you said that because you wouldn't really know that by just judging by the footage that you know no uh, no air conditioning no heat you know what i mean like just looking at it, you think oh this is some legendary building but when you know you hear people tell stories maybe it wasn't the greatest facility as far as holding a wrestling show <clears throat> well the uh uh, physically, no. It was probably one of the worst, dumpiest arenas uh, I'd ever <laughs> been in. Uh, but for the atmosphere and uh, the closeness of the people, uh, all, all it, it had all of that. It had the, like the little Madison Square Garden, I guess. And uh, if you drove by the building, you would think it was just an old fallen down warehouse. Now, is it true that you once lived at the Dallas Sportatorium? <laughs> I knew you was going to ask that. And, uh, yes, old tightwad me, uh, when I uh, first went there and so forth, and uh, I don't know, been there for a month or two, uh, yes, I, I stayed there, and uh, uh, I had uh, some shoot fights with rats 
uh, almost as big as me, the four-legged rats now with the tails. Uh, that building was so rat-infested, it was unreal. But uh, I thought, you know, why pay five, $600 for an apartment when uh, I can sleep on the couch here in my office? So, yeah, I, you know, it had showers, naturally, dressing rooms and so forth. So, yes, I stayed there for a few months, quite a while, really. Yeah, I, I was there one night when a when a car a car came through the front of the sportatorium, right through the wall, right in, scared me to death. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I've had winos and the drunks beat on the doors, you know, half the night trying to get in. And uh, I tell you, one thing I used to do: uh, a lot of the interstates are right there at the sportatorium, the overpasses and stuff, where a lot of the main highways crisscross and so forth. And uh, I used to go to uh, McDonald's and buy a bunch of hamburgers, cheeseburgers, and would go party with the homeless and the winos under the bypasses that were living under there. It it, it was awesome. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did they realize that it was you who, who was partying with them? Not, not really, no. No, they just knew it was that bleached blonde guy from uh, that building over there. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, you've, yeah, had, was, you've had so many uh-huh. like classic moments as far as as world class and down there in Dallas and obviously living in the sportatorium. Uh, some might consider it cheap, but some might consider it smart. But as far as as you down and world class, you think you know you're a Texas champ, you're a light heavyweight champ, you're a tag champ. But I always remember the loser league town match against Cactus Jack. What was it like working with Mick Foley, aka Cactus Jack? Wow, oh, <clears throat> Mick was great. I had uh, how he got to Dallas is uh, I had uh, flew into Memphis for uh, Memphis TV on a Saturday and some show on Sunday, and then Memphis on Monday night. And uh, I was watching the matches. I'd started booking in Dallas already, and. Uh, I saw Cactus and uh, Gary Young, and uh, I went and uh, they got beat. And uh, I went to Lawler and I said, Jerry, uh, this guy and this guy, what are you what are you doing with them? What are they? He said, Well, you know, they've been here for a while and da da da. Not really doing that. I said, Can I have them in Dallas? He said, Oh, that would be great if they want to go. So I went and talked to them, and uh, that's how they got to Dallas. And uh, Cactus, working with Cactus, was like working with a crazy old man. You know, back at, well, he, he did in WWF, WWE too. But the 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 riskiest bump taker in the history of our business that I'm aware of, he would take the craziest bumps, even in the sportatorium, off the ring, off the top rope to the hard floor, concrete floor, the wood floor around the right. I mean, unreal. And uh, he loved to drop an elbow running down the apron of the ring and coming off on you on the floor. And I would beg you, Cactus, please. He'd, he'd try to call that spot, and I'd say, no, ain't no way in hell am I doing that with you. And uh, it would end up, he, he during the match, he would talk me into it, and he would still do it, but I was so afraid he was going to cripple himself while he was working with me, it would be bad anyway, but, you know, but working with me would be that much worse to me because I'd feel like I let it happen. And uh, uh, as far as calling spots with Cactus, uh, you didn't have to. Cactus could 
would just follow you. You didn't have to uh, lay out each move like uh, with so many people that you have to and uh, that you did. Uh, Cactus would just follow you, and uh, Cactus in his book uh, put in there that uh, his last match in Dallas is lose or leave with me. He was disappointed in uh, because we just we went like five or six seconds. To me at the time, it was the best way to beat him because it wouldn't hurt him on our TV that was going everywhere because it would look like a fluke. And uh, But that hurt my feelings so bad when I read that years later. And then, I don't know, four or five years ago, six years, seven years ago, uh, I made contact with Cactus. <laughs> and we cleared that up, that uh, uh, what he had said in the book and so forth. And uh, because... It, if Cactus had come to me that night and said, man, I don't feel comfortable doing it, doing this this way, you know, we would have changed it and went in our Broadway or whatever he wanted to do. That's how much respect I had for that guy. But anyway, it, my feelings are not hurt anymore after all those years. And uh, uh, I talk to him periodically, uh, not, not real often by all means, but just here and there. And uh, just a super great guy. And how he's still walking, physically walking today, just blows my mind. I just, I don't understand. He has a superhuman body. It is crazy. Now he's on that that DDP yoga, but that just goes to show you the life of a booker. You could think you're, you're helping a guy, and all these years later you find out that he hated it and thought you were hurting him. Yes, yeah, it, it hurt his feelings, and... Uh, I had no idea that night because he's, oh, yeah, great, great, oh, sure, no problem, yeah, no problem. And I, I just thought everything was fine. But uh, And he's one of the, the – you know, he got helped get me over big time in Dallas, and I wouldn't have did anything that uh, would have hurt his feelings knowingly, you know. But anyway, uh, it, it's all settled, and we're still buddies, and uh, I don't feel bad about it anymore because he understood. <laughs> That is great. And then another guy that you obviously team with and have a lot of experience with, uh, he was very young and green at that point when you knew him, but he became one of the most popular wrestlers of all time. That's Stone Cold Steve Austin. What were your thoughts at that point of a young Steve Austin? Did you kind of see Star written all over him? Yes. Yes, I did. Uh, And I'm not uh, tooting my own horn, but, uh, you know, I did – Austin's podcast here, uh, I don't know, three or four, four or five months ago, six months, eight, I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, that was the first, I did it twice, and that was the first podcast I did. And actually, brother, yours, this podcast right now, is the third podcast I've agreed to do in all these years. I have turned down hundreds but uh, I, wow. I agreed to do yours, and uh, I'm happy I did. Like I was telling you at first, when I went online and saw all the people that you've been, had on your show, oh, my gosh, you've had anybody or everybody that's anybody in the professional wrestling business. But Steve, uh, Chris Adams, uh, wanted to start a school. Chris was just a money-making son of a gun. He wasn't afraid to work, and uh, he came up with this idea to start, start a school at Sportatorium. So I said, hey, you know, it sounds like a cool idea. And I hooked, uh, next time Jerry Jarrett flew in, 
I hooked those two guys up where they could discuss and come up with the uh, business agreement and so forth. And uh, so he's got the school going, and uh, we did uh, Channel 11 uh, TV on Saturday morning that played there in Fort Worth, Dallas, on Saturday nights. So at uh, one of those TVs, uh, Chris came to me and said, Eric, I've got this guy. Uh, I want you to look at it in my school. Can you stay after uh, TV? And I say I'll stay for a little bit. I say I go up to the cage, the crow's nest, fenced off place at the very top of the arena where family and girlfriends and this and that uh, set to stay out of the people. And uh, I went up and uh, watched Steve uh, in the uh, school for about two minutes, three minutes, not long. And Steve had what everybody calls the it factor. And uh, nobody can explain or I've never seen it or heard it explained in the wrestling business, the it factor. And to me, how to explain the it factor is if you're in Walmart and someone walks in or you're in a room, a crowded room or bar or wherever, and somebody walks in, the it factor is when everybody in there looks at that person and says, ooh, wonder who that is. Who is that? Who is that? The other million people that walk in, you don't even notice or, or, and you ignore. But that when that hit factor walks in, everything stops. And it's like, well, who is that? Who is that? And Brother Steve had that. And then, long story short, uh, after he'd been in the school for two or three months or so, I don't remember, I kept asking Adams, you know, hey, when can we start using that Dalston guy? Oh, he's not ready yet. He's not ready. Uh, Chris was milking him for that uh, money Steve was paying him every week. And uh, finally, I told Chris that, uh, hey, real simple, either you talk to Steve and hook him up with me to come to work, or I'm going to go to Steve and talk to him and offer him a job. And pissed Chris Chris off at me for a little bit, but Chris and I had got along great, and uh, he understood, and... uh, we met with Steve. Steve started working. And uh, Steve's girlfriend, uh, after well, he, he, I don't know how to put it. his friend was Chris's ex-wife, Jeannie, which ended up uh, being Austin's wife uh, afterwards. But, and Chris's, and Chris Adams and Jeannie and I were in Mexico together before uh, Dallas years before and I knew her and stuff and uh, it was real easy the chemistry was there Chris and his wife against Austin and Jeannie and uh, two good looking women and uh, Austin looked good Chris was over almost like a Von Eric and uh, it, it took off man and uh, uh, Austin was uh, on the map you know Austin and uh Cactus Jack both have uh, thanked me for putting them on the radar, putting them on the map. I was the first person that uh, uh, had enough confidence in them to put them out there, put them on top, and uh, had no idea that Austin would go as far as he went, but I knew he would be special, and I always told him he was going to be special. And it's absolutely great that you're able to give those guys their starts 
and really, you know, really see those guys become what they became. Because Foley, no slouch either, he was a, became a huge, huge star. Maybe not as big as Austin, but he also became a huge, huge star in the business. Yes, he did. And neither one of them has sent me that million-dollar check. I just want to put that on the record. <laughs> <laughs> but they both have said thank you, and that, that meant the world to me. You know, I'm happy that uh, uh, I by no means played a part in them accomplishing what they did. And uh, they did all that on their own. But I did put them on the map. I did do that. But they they deserved it. I didn't, you know, they put themselves on the map. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, it worked well for me as a booker, and it ended up working out for them tremendously. Now, through your time, obviously, in wrestling, we mentioned working with Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler. How did that whole thing come about with Jarrett making the deal with Dallas and kind of the AWA being involved and then becoming, you know, that trying to be that conglomerate to take on Vince? Well, it uh, <clears throat> was more of uh, Vern Gagne. Uh, well, but we'll back up the further. Kerry had made some shows, uh, you know, in uh, Memphis. I'm booking Dallas with Gary Hart. Gary Hart's the booker. I guess I would be what you would call an assistant booker. And Kerry was making some shows in Memphis because he could get a good payday. And... Uh, Fritz uh, had then Fritz made a deal with Ken Mantell in just my words because Ken was a good guy good guy and Johnny his brother is my friend but to me Ken made the stupidest deal that I've ever heard of in my life Ken had Wild West Wrestling going in Dallas. It was opposition to world class, TV, everything. But Ken, and I know this from the inside, Fritz and me talked, and Ken class from Fritz, they made the deal, and Ken bought 50% of the profit I, and assumed 100% of the loss. Okay? So mm. Ken, took, Ken took over, Fritz moved out, went to the ranch. And that deal, Kerry, uh, uh, the boys, did not like Ken Mantell because he had started opposition against them. Fritz did it because Fritz did the deal because, in my mind, Fritz was burned out. He'd lost some boys. He, he, my God, he, he was burned out. So he had somebody that was going to pay all of his losses against half of the profit. So Fritz jumped at the deal. Okay, now Kerry is making shows in Memphis, and Jerry Jarrett is a great businessman. Jerry and I have had our differences, but we've had our pluses also. And Jerry started talking to Jerry and offering him Dallas, world class, because the he hated Mantel. And it ended up with getting Jerry, Jared, and Fritz together and Jerry purchasing world class 
from from the Von Erichs, from Fritz. Uh, on the AWA, uh, back then, now, uh, Memphis and Dallas is almost the only place left to work in the AWA. So Jerry Jarrett and Vern uh, had gotten, gotten together. Uh, they had always tried to get the NWA title put on Lawler. And the, uh, the other promoters on the board just wouldn't go for it. And so Vern agreed to put the AWA uh, title to consolidate and Jarrett with his world title, his Memphis thing, and that's how that consolidated, and they put it on Lawler. And uh, I think it was the first pay-per-view, to be honest, the Super Clash that Byrne did in Chicago with Lawler and Kerry uh, for that uh, to unify the world titles, the world-class world title. Oh, Lawler had done one, the AWA and uh, whatever they called Memphis back then, the USWA maybe. And so uh, to to unify the world-class world heavyweight title uh, in Chicago that night, Kerry put Lawler over. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Vern Gagne is deceased and gone, but not only me, but I'm, I'm one of the few that still has not received a check from that pay-per-view. We we all just work for the fun of working, I guess, that night. <laughs> but, Not good. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know Lawler never got paid. And, uh, you know, that's that's the pay-per-view where Kerry uh, cut his uh, tricep on the way to the ring. The bell's ringing and uh, bladed himself in the dressing room. And I can still see Vern Gagne jumping up and down saying, God, Embry, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Oh, my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And just off the top of my head, I got with Terry and uh, uh, wrapped it up just a little bit to kind of clean his arm off his hand where the blood was coming. And I said, Terry, as you get to the ring, say somebody cuts you as you come to the crowd. And that's how we come up with all that. <laughs> But Kerry actually bladed himself by accident as he was putting his robe on. That is great. (laughs) And uh, a a little tidbit of of a great story of of what the hell was, you know, going on leading up to that match. That's great. Yeah, that's really what happened. I mean, I was there. I was the one that uh, told him, you know, hey, when you get to the ring, holler, ah, somebody cut me, somebody cut me. And uh, so that that's why Kerry was bleeding before the match even started on his arm. <laughs> he cut the crap out of it too, brother. You could see the cuts. It was like, oh my Ooh. god. <laughs> and the pay per view, you know, was live. It was live TV. The bells ringing, and uh, we're over on time anyway. And trying to get the main event in the ring, and oh my god, it was crazy. I remember Byrne. If he'd had any hair, he would have pulled it out, the rest of it out. <laughs> Maybe that's why he didn't paint no. another. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now with Lawler, you know, obviously getting the win, he kind of consolidated all those titles. Did you feel like Lawler at that point was the right guy to be like the face of the company? Uh, 
Yes, yeah. And uh, do I still today, looking back? Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's not it's not a secret in the wrestling business that Jerry Lawler and I do not get along well. Uh, we worked with each other. We drew good money with each other. Had super matches with the guy. Uh, personally, I do not like him at all. And personally, he does not like me. Uh, that was part of my deal to take the book in Memphis that Jerry Lawler, Jerry Jarrett, and I would sit down and Jerry Lawler would understand that I do not work for him. Uh, that's why I never worked Memphis uh, before then. And, you know, Memphis was my home territory. I'm from Kentucky. I live in Kentucky now. That was my home. But I always avoided that. I worked at one time and uh, stayed, I don't know, maybe two weeks, three weeks, and I left because of the personality class. But as, as a talent, Jerry Lawler is one of the best professional wrestlers performing-wise that ever laced up a pair of boots. He was that good. But And his feelings are, I'm not dogging him, uh, his feelings toward me are the same. And, uh, you know, like I say, we could work together and very stiff matches, but uh, we couldn't have a conversation like you and I are having right now. Always surprised when guys can work kind of in the ring together and then outside the ring not, you know, not like each other. Is that just like a, a respect factor when you get out there or is that just part of being a professional? I, th- I think both. I think both. Uh, I had the utmost respect for him as a performer, as a wrestler, because he was that good. But uh, our personalities just clashed. Uh, we, we just clashed. But uh, like I say, man, he, he's one of the best that ever laced up a pair of boots, cut and dry, bar none. That almost hurt me to say that, but not really. <laughs> Well, he is the king of Memphis, and if you're booking Memphis, uh, you know he's he's pretty over. So you know you you got to uh, you know you got to kind of keep him strong a bit. Oh yes, yes, and well, he was the Von Eric of Memphis. That's a, that's a way to put it. I never heard that before, but uh, he was the Von Eric in Memphis. You bet, you bet. I remember one time. I'm just rambling on here. But uh, we were having a, uh, you know, I brought a lot of the Texas ideas that I'd used in Texas that worked to Memphis. And uh, one of them was uh, uh, a battle roll where you bring anything you want to the ring. And uh, Lawler was saying, uh, was in the dressing room, he was saying, you know, and, it, you know, the battle roll is next week. And uh, he was saying, yeah, I don't know what to bring. It's a dumb idea. And uh, I don't know what to bring. I looked at him, I said, King. I said, hell, you brought everything but the kitchen sink over the years. I'm sure you can think of something. You know what he did next Monday night? Brought a damn kitchen sink to the battle roll. <laughs> 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 I like to fill out the ring. I'm in the ring, and here he comes down the aisle, and he's carrying a two-compartment stainless steel kitchen sink. <laughs> That's great. You, you kind of, without knowing it, gave, gave him uh, possibly, you know, one of the greatest ideas for bring anything you want to Battle Royal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he brought the kitchen sink. <laughs> now, with, yeah. you, you know, USWA 
did you think that Brian Christopher, Jerry's son, was going to get as over as Jerry, or was that kind of like wishful thinking almost impossible to be as over as Jerry? It, it would be impossible in Memphis for anybody to get over uh, stronger than Jerry got over. Uh, n- not just because of uh, the talent that Lawler was, but, you know, Jackie Fargo passed the torch to Lawler and super talent. But you got to remember, he's part owner of the territory. So nobody, no matter what, is going to get over more than he got over. Period. Now, is it true that if, if somebody was getting as over, he would kind of, you know, want to protect his territory? Or was he not as political as some of the stories go? Uh, very political. and uh, But he was such a talent. And I can understand a promoter wanting and having to have that top spot, Tory, filled by someone you can trust. And Jerry Jarrett could trust Jerry Lawler because it was part of his territory, too. So uh, no matter what happens, Jerry Lawler is not going to leave you and work with opposition and come in against you. Does that make sense? Yep. Absolutely. And it it goes back to Dallas when I took the... uh, when Jarrett bought it and offered me the book, Gary Hart had had a situation with Jerry Jarrett a few years, well, many years before in Atlanta. And uh, so Gary just went right home when Jerry bought it. He knew Jerry Jarrett would not use him, and neither did he want to work for Jerry Jarrett. And my first meeting with Jerry was uh, if I would agree to take the book, uh, he he explained it to me, and it made so much sense to me later. He said, Eric, uh, we could go into war with the Von Erics. He said, I hope it don't happen, but it could. And he said, so my top person in this territory has to be somebody we can trust. And he said, who can we trust as much or more then we can trust you. And I said, I don't know. I said, that would be who we could trust. He said, it's okay. So if you take the book, he said, you have to push yourself as the top baby face. And I was like, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. He said, there's no choice, no option. So my push in Dallas was not my idea. It was Jerry's idea. He didn't come up with any of the storylines or any of that, but initially it was him telling me, you have to push yourself because we could end up in war against the Von Erics. And that, that's how my push came about. And uh, the, uh, that brings back another one, if you want to hear it. Uh, when we had the big match to change the name from World Class to USWA, there was uh, uh, Jerry Jarrett got a cease, I think they call it cease and desist order from Fritz 
saying after such and such a date, you can no longer use the name World Class Championship Wrestling. You did not purchase that from us. So you cannot use it after, and this date was like three months down the road, giving me a three-month notice or so. So that's how I came up with the idea of uh, changing the name was P.Y. Chuhai and my our angle that we did. And then the blow-off was uh, with the uh, board of directors and blah, blah, blah. And uh, with P.Y. represent the heel representing world-class, dogging world-class for weeks. And that name against USWA with me representing USWA when I beat P.Y., we went over and ripped down the world-class banner. USWA was born. World-class was done. And that whole angle was because Prince, uh, the lawyers, said you can no longer use world-class championship wrestling name after such and such date. That's how that angle came about. Well, so real their, 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 their idea, their idea sold out the sportatorium for me a few weeks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> real life uh, lending a hand to the the booking. I, yes, I yes. <laughs> but nothing, and I'm not dogging Fritz there. Nothing but respect for that man. He was so kind to me. And Fritz could be so intimidating to people. But once you got to know Fritz, oh, man, puppy dog. What a nice guy. He actually asked Bronco Lubitsch, and, and I steal this stuff, was a feather in my cap. Bronco Lubitsch, I loved Bronco, come to me. He said, Eric, he said, Fritz asked me something a while ago. I said, what did he ask you? He said, he asked me, he said, is that Eric Kimber? Is he as smart to this business as he appears, or am I just not seeing it right? And I said, wow, what a compliment. What a compliment for Fritz to say hmm. that. That is great. Yeah. Fritz, you, yeah. you know, you're you're basically coming in contact with Fritz, who's a huge legend in the business. Jerry Lawler, big, huge legend. You know, so many of these guys you're coming in contact with, and we haven't even mentioned who trained you. Lou says, possibly the biggest name of, of them all. That's pretty damn amazing you know, when you think about it. Oh, God, what a guy. Poor Lou. Poor guy. He had no choice because Lou's wife, Miss Thayers, her name's Charlie. When I met her, I hadn't been working real long, but in Georgetown, Kentucky, there was, I pulled in, going in the back door of the little arena, and there was this lady sitting in the car. And uh, I went over and tapped on the window. She rolled the window down. I said, ma'am, would you like to come in? And just, you know, just being nice. Had no clue who she was. And she says, no. And uh, I said, well, you know, da, da, da. And she says, well, I'm Luthez's wife. And my hair is not presentable the way it should be to be his wife. So I just need to sit out here. And I was like, wow. And I talked to her just a little bit. Anyway... Charlie and me got along great, and poor old grumpy Lou had no choice but to like me then. And he opened so many doors for me. Oh, my gosh. He, he sent me to Mexico the first time, and just, oh, super, super guy. And a tough son of a gun. He was, Even in his older years, oh, my God, he was tough. 
awesome that, uh, you know, you got over with his wife, so you're able to get over with him. So that's, <laughs> yes. that's, that's pretty cool. Yes, that's that's really what happened there. The poor old, you know, Lou didn't take crap from anybody, man. It didn't matter, you know. He was as big as you could get in the business back then, and he just he didn't take crap from anybody. And uh, he had to like me. He didn't have a choice. <laughs> him and I would laugh about that. Oh my gosh! And I, you know, I talked to him about uh, I don't know. It was November of one year. I was in Florida. And had no I discovered on the internet it's back after I'd called Percy and been out for seven almost seven years and I Lou was in Florida and was about forty miles from where I was at. And uh uh I was coming home to Kentucky for Christmas and then when I went back to Florida we were gonna hook up and he passed away. Never got to get back with him. I've always regretted that. Oh, yeah, man. it was it was it, yeah, it was great talking to him, but I would just wish we could have got together. One thing I love about Fez was that you know they say like legit tough guys and thick shooters they call some guys, but he was a hooker, so you know he was he, he was, was a hooker. Like, yes, he would he would yeah, break it as he took you down, brother. He didn't play. He would break that arm, break that ankle as he took you down, and uh, the shoot was over. It didn't last very long. <laughs> yes, yes. How did you actually like start training with him? Like were you in the business already? Did he kind of you know what I mean? Like how did you actually yes. decide that he was going to be your uh-huh. trainer? I I was just uh starting in the business, working a little out. Well, they called them outlaw shows back then for just little promoters and uh so forth and uh then, you know, I met him at Georgetown. He'd come in doing a spot show for this little promoter up there. And uh, we just, uh, you know, like I say, we hooked up and we met again at Georgetown. And uh, then we just, uh, uh, he he started opening doors. And uh, we would work out in just, you know, different places, go to his motel and uh, uh, different arenas and uh, it, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, Scott Keel, uh, outside of Nashville has a private reunion about every year at his house. And, uh, I was at that about a month ago, you know, no, just wrestlers and their wives and a lot of us old people. And, uh, this boy told me, he said, you know, he said, I never understood it. He said, how did you pull this off? He said, you would always go to a territory, and before long, you was the booker. You were on top, and da da da. And uh, it, it's real simple. And we're we're hitting on it now with Lou. Uh, as I was learning the business until the day I finished the business, I always listened and asked the old timers, so to speak, for advice. And it would sincerely ask them, not just. Uh, uh, showing some bullshit respect, you know, uh, you know, like wrestling two in Florida and Don Jardine. And I, I could just go on and on name names, but you know, Hey, can you watch my match tonight and help me? And, uh, I was really sincere and I would listen to what these guys would tell me. And that's how I got over. And that's how I learned the business. Uh, before I had my, uh, when I had my first match, uh, I had paid a guy $800 to train me, 
and he showed me how to put on a headlock and how to uh, do an arm bar and reverse an arm bar, and that's all I knew. And uh, I pulled off a two-out-three-fall uh, match, two straight, <laughs> but uh, uh, had no clue. I knew our business was a work uh, in my mind from growing up watching it, but had no, no clue that it was really a work. And then when one of the guys came back to the dressing room with color after a match, I thought, oh, my God. And then I got to see a blade and uh, this and that. And, but just listening to the old-timers, uh, I, I, it paved, paved the road for me from really listening to them and trying to do what they told me. That is great that you're taking the advice and really asking these legends of the business. Mr. Wrestling number two, the spoiler, uh, obviously, Lou says. Is that just something that came natural to you? Like, you know, you see something, you learn it, and you're able to adapt it? Because it seems like you really do have a great mind and a great psychology for the wrestling business. Yeah, the the, the mind came. Jerry Jarrett told me one time at Memphis TV, I don't remember the angle, but they were doing, and I overheard them. I was like, Jerry, if you do that, the people are going to do the. And he's like, oh, God, you're right. And he changed it. And after he said, you know, Eric, he said, you have the fastest mind I have ever seen in professional wrestling. I said, well, thank you, sir. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if it just comes from growing up watching it or, uh, uh, you know, a lot of it is really digesting what the – and I call them old-timers, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, uh, but by digesting what the guys on top were telling me that I should do and not do, and li- you know, listening to them and, and digesting it and uh, trying to be like them one day. And uh, I think I almost, I almost made it. Oh, believe me, you, uh, you definitely made it. I mean, you've accomplished <laughs> oh, so much, know. whether it be whether it be with the book or in the ring. So, I think they would be pretty proud. I think Lou would be pretty proud, you know, of uh, all oh, the accomplishments uh, for sure. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. He uh, he was a good old fella. He was grumpy, but he was good. God, he was good. Nice guy. <laughs> I can remember working with him in Mexico. I actually had a match with him in uh, Torreo on a Sunday big show, probably 40, without exaggerating, 40, maybe 50,000 people. And uh, we tried to do that, uh, God, I don't know what you call it, uh, bridging up. We're both of us bridge up and uh, go into hip tosses, da, da, and I couldn't bridge up. Oh, my God, I thought he was going to kill me. <laughs> I thought he was going to kill me. But it, uh, yeah, he, he opened a lot of doors for me. Lou has to has to take a lot of the credit. Uh, he, he he did he did me well. He isn't one of those guys where I'd want to screw up in, in the match when I was wrestling him. No, no, not very much anyway. He 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 was a little cheeky, you know. He he wasn't afraid to jerk you around a little bit, but. Uh, uh, sometimes I think just to show you he could maybe, <laughs> but uh, hmm. no, he he was good. God, he was good to me. And I'm so sorry I didn't get to hook up with him and he passed away. Just oh man, but you know that's life. We just uh, I'll see him in the next one. Absolutely, and you know we mentioned 
the spoiler mentioned Florida just a little bit. And today is actually, when we're recording this today, is actually Dusty Rhodes' birthday. Did you have any experience down there? Uh-huh. I know you teamed with him a bit and wrestled. What was your kind of experience down in Florida with Dusty? Yeah, Dusty, Dusty was there. Dusty was uh, would come in and out. Uh, I don't know where he was working uh, where else at the time, but uh, uh, when I was there, J.J. Uh, Dillon was booking. J.J. was booking. And uh, thank goodness, you know, J.J. gave me my first big break. Uh, that was the first big territory that pushed me. And uh, Dusty would uh, come in and out for big shows and uh, – you know, you'd go three or four weeks without seeing him, and then Dusty come in for two or three days. And uh, but very, very nice guy. Uh, nothing. Uh, I think that was maybe the, about the only times I was around Dusty was when he was, you know, when I was in Florida. And uh, very nice. Uh, no problems at all with Dusty. And uh, uh, I would ask Dusty, you know, hey, you get a chance, brother? Can you uh, watch your match tonight and see if there's anything you can help me with? And uh, he did. He did some. And uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, oh, they did. And uh, it, it uh, as years later, as I look back, because I was so young in the business and it was my first push, I didn't realize where I was at uh, territory-wise. You know, I was in a great territory and working right next to the top. It was unreal when I looked back at it. I, I didn't know I was uh, uh, that. I didn't. I, I didn't realize where I was at. Uh, it just, you know, never sunk in until a few years later. And look back, it's like, wow. Uh, as I got out into the business, it's like, man, everybody respected Eddie Graham. Talked about how smart he was, and uh, you know, I, I, uh, I saw JJ at this Legends reunion a few years ago and got to thank him. Uh, for giving me my first push, for being the first booker that had a little confidence in me. And uh, I did get to thank him. And Bugsy McGraw. Oh, Bugsy. Bugsy was back then. Oh, yeah. I think we talked over each other. What, buddy? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, well, Bugsy McGraw, big legend. I was going to say with uh, JJ, what did he say to you, you know, as far as, after you thanked him for the push, did he say anything back to you? No, no. Not, well, I mean, you know, he just thanked me for thanking him and so forth. Just, you know, the casual conversation. And uh, uh, he, he he said, I wished, he did say he wished it could have lasted longer, and uh, which we all wish that good stuff could last longer. But they, uh, mm-hmm. they brought in uh, Dory Funk Jr. as the booker. And uh, Jr. had his own people. And uh, he pushed me just a, uh, a little bit. And uh, what happened, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. And uh, with me there, uh, that ended my Florida, uh, we had a battle royal in Lakeland. And the winner goes against Ric Flair for the NWA world title, the next Lakeland Florida show. And uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe come to me and said, boy, it was a pole battle world and they come to me in the dressing room and said boy it'd be funny if old mike graham couldn't make it up that pole and you know i'm that's my first first territory big territory 
I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and they said, well, something happened to that pole, you know, like if you put some baby oil all over you and you climbed that pole and got it all over the pole and he couldn't go up it, it sure would be funny. And I said, oh, God, I can't do that. And Jerry looked at me and said, if you don't, Embry, Jack's going to kick your ass. I said, oh, hell, I got it. <laughs> I said, I, I got a better idea then. I said, Jack, give me that cellophane wrapper around your cigarette package. He said, okay, what are you going to do with that? I said, I'm going to put the baby oil in it, tape it up, shut, put it in my mouth. I'll climb that pole. I'll spit it out into my hand. I'll bust it on the pole, and I'll haul that damn pole. Oh, brother, I did. And uh, when I spit that out in my hands, I come down that pole about 900 miles an hour, like to kill myself on top of Onita and Fuji, the two Japanese boys that was there. And Onita's like, ooh, Embry, no good, potato, potato. And then he started hollering, ooh, oil, oil, no good, no good. So I snatched him, you know, thanks, shut up, shut up. And then, long story short, it's down to the finish. Okay, we got a hell of a house. <laughs> After about 10 minutes, not exaggerating, about 10 minutes of Mike trying multiple times to make it up the pole. People are starting to holler, bullshit, my little girl could climb that pole. People started leaving. <laughs> now, we're all standing in the back laughing. Now, the funny is over to uh, uh, the big shots, you know, funk and this and that. It's like, God, what are going to do? And Jerry Briscoe thinks, okay. He said, all right. Uh, he said, let, let me take him a T-shirt. So Jerry, who'd been eliminated, goes back to the ring, takes Mike a T-shirt. Mike tries to climb the pole with the T-shirt, still can't climb it. Jerry comes back, oh, God, what are we going to do? Brother, three quarters of the arena left, walked out. Oh, my God. Because every, <laughs> oh everybody God. thinks they can climb the pole. I mean, you know, hell, your little girl could climb it. And uh, finally... Funk is pulling what little bitty bit of Harry has, and uh, he goes uh, to Jerry. He said, "God, do something!" And I don't remember if it was Funk or Jerry Briscoe said, "Climb up on there, let Mike climb up on your shoulders." So Jerry went back down to the ring. They did another spot, and then Jerry climbed up on the top rope, holding held on onto the pole, and Mike climbed up his back, stood on his shoulders, and got the the gimmick to face Flair. But there wasn't a whole lot of people left to see it. The dresser, God, he was so mad, brother. Me and him didn't get along very well either. But And Jerry uh, and Jack told if anybody says anything, we'll kick your ass. And, you know, it's, don't worry, Eric, you'll be okay. And uh, But about, oh, it was, it might come back, though, and said, God, this is the most embarrassing night of my life. And I just kind of snickered, you know. And uh, it was less than a week I got my notice. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody ratted you out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack and Jerry got me fired. <laughs> oh, they, they told man. me they called. Jack, Jack was going to whoop me if I didn't hold the phone. But it was a great night, brother. It, it was funny. Oh, my God. But, oh, it, had to, it hurt business bad in that town. Bad. But, <laughs> but you know, it wasn't my fault. Jack told me to. That is great, though, that basically uh, these fans are saying, this guy can't climb this pole. How is he going to be wrestling Ric Flair? This is embarrassing. Oh, yeah. yeah they were hollering. Bullshit chant. 
and I mean leaping, and my little girl could climb that, my little boy could climb that, and uh, and the truth is they could, but there wasn't nobody could climb that pole with all that oil on it. <laughs> hey, that's a great that, that was one great of my idea. Not, <laughs> one of my not good judgment calls there. Looking back, it was yeah. a great idea because it's, it's a funny story. Yeah, it was. It's it's hundred percent true, though. By golly, <laughs> I haven't seen uh, Jerry since then. I'm I'm looking forward to the day I run into Jerry where I can uh, ask him about that and laugh with him about it. It is crazy through the years, like you said, you haven't seen Dr. Tom or the Dirty White Boy in a while. <laughs> Obviously, you said you haven't seen Jerry Briscoe. Is it? Is it crazy in a way that that's such a you know strange business that you see these guys basically more than your family? Then all of a sudden, poof, you just don't see them anymore. Well, I, you know, it's like I was telling you, I had to stay away to be able to stay away, and mm. uh, then you know after uh, I got past that point, which you know I think Austin has said something along those lines where he was like three or four years or something before he would do anything. And, uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, it, you know, I missed everybody for a while. Not that I will not really love and enjoy seeing them now, but, uh, life goes on. Uh, I went to a divorce. I got remarried. I have, uh, three daughters with this wife now and little Eric with the first wife and uh, you know the kids got to eat uh, daddy has to work and uh, my littlest just turned 11 she's my work till I die daughter and uh, was kind of a surprise <laughs> but I wouldn't trade her for a billion dollars and uh, yeah it, so you know I, I just uh, uh, I just refused all the appearance offers and podcast offers and uh <clears throat> made a different life and uh, don't regret doing that. But now I think I'm okay with uh, being able to uh, do one here or there and uh, not let uh, wrestling control my life again because your whole life was controlled by the wrestling business. Uh, to be good at it, you had to live it, eat it, and sleep it. Now, as we start to wind it down a bit here in the interview, I have to say, you know, absolutely honored that you, you basically would do our show and Steve Austin's show. I mean, that's pretty pretty amazing to think that, wow, Steve Austin, us, kind of in, in the same sentence. And so we're definitely honored to have you on. But I, well, I'm honored to be here, too, buddy. Honored to be here. I got to ask you, because you've wrestled literally – everywhere and obviously made such an impression in world class and such an impression USWA. Do you have a couple favorite matches in your career looking back? Uh yeah. Uh just I mean spur of the moment, uh some matches I had with uh Invader Two in Puerto Rico would uh be high there because he spoke very, very, very little English, and I spoke very, very, very little Spanish, and uh, we went many our broadways for different titles over there, and just tremendous uh, 
super matches. His name was Johnny, and not Jose, Invader 1, that had the incident with Brody. This was Invader 2, Johnny. And uh, those matches really clicked. Uh, Superstar Bill Dundee was a working son of a gun. Uh, Had some uh, super matches with him. As much as I hate to say it, Jerry Lawler. Uh, Our our chemistry, in-ring chemistry, uh, was not bad. Uh, Memorable matches with him. Uh, Back into uh, Dallas would be uh, Gary Young, Cactus. Uh, Well, and Memphis up that way. Uh, Jeff Jarrett, by all means. Oh, my gosh, what a talent that boy was. Good business mind, good head for the business. Uh, well, you know, and he should have. He grew up in it. But uh, a lot of the promoters' kids uh, didn't take after their daddies and uh, uh, get that mind for the business. Uh, just the opposite. They were horrible, some of the other promoters' kids. But uh, that that's just to name a few. I don't uh, – we'd be on here all night if I, uh, you know, name, named them all. But uh, – those are some that really stand out. And, and Carlos Colon, by all means. Oh, gosh, yeah. Carlos, uh, uh, his in-ring psychology was just tremendous, and he was over like a Von Eric in Puerto Rico. And, you know, the crowds were really behind him. And uh, uh, when, when the crowd is up and going, uh, that match is just uh, a million times easier. It's, it, it's just easy. It just comes natural. You just kind of follow each other. When you, when you can follow each other and not talk, uh, you know, the chemistry is there. You know you're having that good match, that, that memorable moment with that person. You know, so, now, so many of the matches... Uh, uh-huh? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off. What were you, what were you about to say? No, I, I guess so many of the matches, you know, the heel calls the match, leads the match, or the veteran. Mm-hmm. And so many of your matches, you know, you're telling your opponent when to breathe, so to speak. You're calling every move. And those memorable moments uh, or memorable matches are those matches where you don't have to talk and call the high spots. They just, they happen. With uh, each of you were just following, then you know you've got that memorable moment. And you definitely mastered that craft and were able to have good chemistry with all those guys, and, and obviously so many other guys as well that we haven't mentioned. But I got to mention just briefly, wanted to mention Japan because I know you spent some time over there. Was Japan uh, special to you at all when working for Baba and All Japan, or, or did you not really care for that style? Didn't care for it, hated it, hated the food, hated the the airplane trip there, the airplane trip back, didn't like the hotel rooms, uh, hotel rooms about the size of somebody's bathroom over here, and I I just uh, was miserable every time I went there, did not like it at all. What about Canada, and obviously, you know, Vancouver, also wrestling, but you also worked Stampede with uh, Stu Hart. Did you enjoy wrestling in Canada at all? Yes, yes, yes. I loved it up there. Uh, Al Tomko over on the West Coast, uh, and Gene Kanemski, and then uh, 
for Stu, the Hart boys. Uh, had a good time there. Probably, off the top of my head, worked Calgary three or four different times for months at a time. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it there. Uh, when I was... When I was there, Bret Hart was uh, just a young boy and uh, learn, learning the business, so to speak. And uh, he's another one that I told, uh, you'll be something someday, boy. The rest of the boys, no. Uh, Owen uh, Owen Hart was just a little kid when I was there. He was probably 8, 10 years old. He wasn't, uh, you know, hadn't started working yet. But uh, Brett, I knew, would uh, be special. Uh, Jim Nyhart had just started in, in the business uh, when I was working in Calgary one time. And uh, that's a whole other story for a different time. <laughs> that guy's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a crazy reputation, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Well, he, he, he earned it, I promise you. <laughs> and that dynamite kid, what a talent he was up there. Oh, my gosh. He was a working son of a gun as a young kid back then, too. He could go. Between Brad and Dynamite, I mean, two of the all-time great in-ring wrestlers, uh, there's no doubt about that. Yes, by all means. They both worked their butts off in that ring. They didn't take it for granted. They sucked it up and went out there and got it. Yes, sir. Now, was your favorite aspect in the business wrestling or more the more the booking business aspect of it no wrestling by far i enjoyed that much more much more yeah the, book, now, the booking side was was hard you know it, 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 the booking side was more like a nine to five job but 24 hours a day the wrestling part you go out you perform for an hour or whatever and uh you don't worry about it till the next night. So more satisfaction, obviously, from the wrestling aspect rather than the booking aspect of it. Yes, for me it was, yes. Now, you know, right as we kind of get into the final question here, I just have to mention, obviously, one more time, Legends of the Ring, October 21st in Monroe, New Jersey, You'll be with Nick over at Captain's Corner, and everyone can go to Captain's Corner's Facebook page or his free web store. It's Captain's Corner. Check it out. He's got the legendary Eric Embry and a lot of other rare guests. So I just wanted to mention that one more time, one final plug. But one final question for me, and it's kind of what we like to ask. It's almost like a, a lasting legacy or your stamp. What do you say would be your lasting legacy on the wrestling business? Or what would you say is kind of that final stamp that you want to, you know, leave behind the wrestling business? Well, I would like to say that most of the talent that worked for me as a booker could see that I really cared about them as a person, not just a wrestler. Uh, I was really concerned and worried about how they were going to feed their family and take care of their family. Was I uh, smart enough to uh, come up with the angles and write the TVs that would enable them to get a good good paycheck families? And uh, I think most of the the guys uh, could tell and really thought that... uh, 
that was one of my, if not the main concern I had. It's great not only to to have you on, but it's also great to talk about different aspects, not just in-ring. I love talking about kind of the booking aspect with you as well. So it was really kind of cool to touch on a myriad of topics and even go kind of behind the scenes a little. And I appreciate you kind of opening up and telling us some great, great behind the scenes and some backstage stories as well. I appreciate you having me. And, uh, you know, I've been out of the business. I'm not in the business. And uh, I have nothing to hide or cover up anymore. And uh, I just shoot straight and uh, uh, have no regrets about being an honest person. And uh, also, if uh, can I stick an email address out there? I did this on uh, Austin's podcast and got hundreds sure. of emails. Yep. And, and it, it was really cool because I heard from people I hadn't heard from for years and uh, would make contact and reminisce and I'd answer uh, some fans' questions, you know, that I didn't have a clue who they were and uh, they would, uh, you know, do, just ask me different things. And uh, I used, you know, I, I got such a response, it might take me a week or two to get back with you, but I, I will get back with you. And that email is real simple. It's Eric Embry at bbtail.com Eric Embry at the letter B the letter B T E L dot com and uh, I'll try my best to answer whatever anybody wants to ask me that is great and a great opportunity for any fan out there that has uh, some questions for you so definitely uh, send him some emails ask him some good questions not only wrestling-wise, ask them some tough booking questions as well. Sure, sure. If they if they want a truthful answer, that's uh, they'll get one. <laughs> you know, sometimes the truth hurts. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Well, Eric, it's it's been an honor to have you on. I just like to thank you again because it's very rare guest for us, and we love those rare guests. So thank you again so much for uh, spending a lot of time with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for thinking about me. And I'm really looking forward to seeing people at the Legends event. And uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.